Welcome to Language Stories, a podcast discovering languages around the world and meeting the people who speak them. I'm Lindsay Williams from Lindsay Does Languages, a language-obsessed chica on the constant exploration of languages no matter where I am in the world. And this episode, welcome to Scotland. Welcome to the first bonus episode of Language Stories. Bonus episodes work a little differently to the regular season episodes. There's less input from me and more from the interviewees. And for this first bonus episode, we're a little closer to home than we've been so far. Agatha O'Brien is a real advocate for Scottish Gaelic, a minority, or rather, as will become clear in our conversation, minoritised language spoken in Scotland. As well as teaching, translating and working on volunteer projects involving the language, he also worked as the consultant for the Sony Pictures TV series Outlander. But that's not all. He's also the man behind the salvation of a dialect of Scottish Gaelic that would have otherwise been long forgotten. That dialect is Dariada Gaelic. And when my friend Maureen Millward first mentioned Agatha to me, I knew we had to speak with him to learn more. Can you, yeah. can you, can you talk a little bit about languages in general in Scotland? Because there's more than just English. Aye, aye. Yeah, obviously on the surface, what you'll find especially in an official situation, say you flew into the airport in Glasgow, then you would find people making an effort to speak English simply because it's the world's lingua franca and um, they, they will either dull down their accent or some people will actually dull down their language, which in Glasgow certainly, and, uh, and especially in rural parts of the lowlands, is uh, uh, lowland Scots. And lowland Scots um, is actually... Although it's very, very difficult to talk about the age of languages, but if we wanted to simplify it, we could actually come out with the bold statement that it is older than English, mm. which it is. It's the closest thing to, to old English that we now have and, and retains, uh, or certainly until relatively recently, retained a lot of features that modern English has, uh, mercy in English has lost. So, for instance, uh, Lowland Scots uh, retained the masculine feminine neuter cases up until the 19th century. Um, it re- retains a whole load of sort of antiquated or dead antiquated spellings and grammatical features, um, and it's probably best known as being the language of Rabbi Burns, who is potentially maybe even the world's most famous poet on account of "Old Lang Syne" that everyone sings at New Year. Yeah. But Scots is uh, very much under threat, um, so in some ways more so than than, than Scottish Gaelic, because of its similarity to English, which means that it's sort of uh, gets lost within the sort of greater English sea. So mm. it's like pouring a pint of Scottish beer into the English sea, you know. Which, yeah. <laughs> That's a really, you know, yeah, it's a really yeah. good description. Um, people are now finding that their Scots is being worn away, but a lot of people don't realise that they're not speaking Scots anymore and they think they actually are. And, and while you don't want to in any way interfere with people's own self-perception or their pride in the way they speak or anything like that, you know, if you wanted to get technical about it, you you could you could be quite cruel and just grab people by the shoulder and go, ah, you know, you're not actually speaking Scots anymore. You know, yeah. you're speaking Scottish English with a, a heavy intermixture of Scots words and and grammatical forms, but it's not actually Scots. So it's um, it, it, there's a massive threat to it. In Glasgow, where I live at the moment, I mean, I'm speaking Scottish English at, at present rather than Scots. 
Uh, in Glasgow, there's a bridging dialect, an urban dialect, uh, which I speak fluently and which my wife and, and her uh, family all, all, all speak natively. Mm. And it's a very, very rich, humorous uh, patois, somewhere between lowland Scot- rural Lowland Scots and, and modern English, and actually just grabbing whatever the heck it likes out of both. Nice. You know, um, so it, it, it's, a, it's a bolshy, self-confident tongue, and it doesn't actually show any signs of dying off. Um, because it has actually been recognised in some senses internationally as uh, being a, a real repository of, of a unique sense of humour. Right. And while in the past the Highlands of Scotland uh, could be said to possess the great warriors and the, the really sort of uh, rebellious uh, folks in Scotland, uh, that mantle has been passed to Glasgow. And and so people with this, with this sort of attitude of... Uh, you know, you'll no tell me what to do. Glasgow has a very distinct personality of its own. Mm. And I think it's probably where you're going to find the most vigorously uh, linguistically independent people in Scotland at the moment. So then the, the final, uh, the third uh, element, uh, um, if we're not going to talk about Old Welsh and Norn, which are now, of course, extinct, um, would be Scottish Gaelic. Um, I refer to the language as Gaelic, even though a lot of people call it Gaelic, um, for the simple reason that I wouldn't say I, I speak Francais or I speak Espanol. Ah. You know, I would speak. I say I speak French and I speak Spanish, so I wouldn't say I speak Gaelic, which is the name for the language in the language itself. You know, um, Gaelic language uh, is a dialect continuum which stretches from the north, the very north of Scotland and Sutherland, right the way down in, in an arc, ending up at the Galway coast in Ireland and includes the Isle of Man and it's all Gaelic language and it's all spoken by Gaels mm. so I, I see it as one language and I don't really count geopolitical boundaries as, as particularly important in in, in, uh, in in dealing with culture you know I suppose in a way you could say the kind of imperialist British bureaucracy was the thing that destroyed Gaelic um, by making it an incongruous language to speak um, you know and all all concepts of uh, success and progress were channeled through uh, the acquisition of English, meaning that Gaelic ended up a sort of road that went off into, you know, the, 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 the Scots Pines mm. out to the north and west and through the heather when people just wanted to get on and get ahead down the, the, the straight Roman road to London. The, the process by which people learn the language in Scotland is a kind of a British bureaucratic one. It's through, you know, legislation and and language acts and Gaelic medium education. Mm. And while all these things are absolutely essential, you've got to do the paperwork and you've got to do it well to create a supportive environment. It's not actually saving the colour and texture and beauty of the language as it lies on the land. You know, so it's almost like we've now got the the rare, um, you know, black and white tiger in captivity. You know, and we're feeding it on on uh, on 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 meat, but the damn thing's forgetting how to hunt. Yeah. You know, it's difficult to talk about it without analogies because um, what's happening at the moment is there is this kind of really bald kind of uh, you know bureaucrat speak about what needs to happen that the, and that the language should be vibrant. And as all this, it should be this, and let's make it this, and let's do this to get. But the actual language itself, as it exists in the minds and hearts of our old people, is still dying off. You know, you, you, you'll switch the radio on and you're still hearing news of uh, on Radio Gale of uh, the next funeral of, you know, the, the latest repository of local knowledge. Mm. And nobody's learning that because people aren't learning from people. 
it's like the language survived very well for thousands of years, in fact, you know, contrary to popular belief, potentially even since the beginning of the Iron Age in Scotland. And it, it, it survived by being passed intergenerationally between people, uh, you know, through a mixture of um, necessity, because it's the only language they had, but also through pride and through um, a cultural discernment and a repetition of folklore and, and, tra and tradition that meant that people felt they belonged to something. Mm. Now it's being uh, 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 preserved almost as if it's been stuffed in a jar and pickled with vinegar and, you know, and then put on a shelf. And that doesn't work. The British bureaucratic mindset is like, you know, kryptonite is to Superman. Mm. That's the way it, Gaelic suffers next to that. If it's close to that, it gets all twisted up and, and shriveled. And yet people can't see what they're actually doing. They, they, they are creating an undead gale. You know, the language is sort of wandering around, you know, uh, barely conscious. And it's alive because it's being kept on life support, not because it actually has any kind of self-sustaining juice of its own. Yeah. So the way I see it is we get back to uh, spending time with our elders. Um, a great example of that, of course, would be uh, uh, the likes of uh, Leanne Hinton's uh, Mentor Apprentice system from, from Western the USA, um, in which they managed to save three or four tribal languages in California. You know, wow. by by putting young people in with their elders and saying, "Have at it, spend three hours a day, four days a week, and 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 just repeat everything they're saying and help them with their household tasks and, and learn to speak like them and think like them and love like them and see see the world like them." And yet here it's like, "Oh no, we need to throw kids into um, various uh, curriculums." just like they are in English, but we'll do the whole lot through Gaelic, and somehow we think we're going to pre preserve the mindset. Mm. Do you know what I mean? I mean, yeah. just because, you know, you've you've made your dough into a roll doesn't mean it's not still bread. I think it's it's so obvious when you think about it, isn't it? Just that idea of, well, we've got people that speak it. You know, like you say, people talk to people, and that's how it would have been, and that's how it should be. And I think sometimes we almost try and overcomplicate it. We, 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 we just, you know, yeah. <laughs> like you say, that sort of the legislation is it's a good thing, but it's almost like the, the the how perhaps is not as well thought out as the what it seems. Yeah. Exactly, people people undoubtedly have got the stage in Scotland now. I mean, you know, surveys were done not that long ago, a year or two ago, and it was about seventy odd percent of people said, "Oh no, we definitely think." Gaelic's an important part of Scotland, should be preserved, should be encouraged. And I mean, that's massive change yeah. from even 20 years ago, you know, where it's, you know, whatever, maybe half of people at, at most were like, well, we'd rather it didn't die, but we don't really give a toss, you know. Yeah. So we've got the sympathetic environment now and, and, and we've got the Gaelic Language Act in place whereby you know, the country uh, is obliged to, to provide a sympathetic environment for it. We now need to stop that, tear off the ill-fitting grey suits that we've been wearing for the last 20, 30, 40 years, and actually get back to being gales again. One of the people that we spoke to so far um, has had learnt Catalan. He's American, but he'd been in Barcelona for a while, and so he'd learnt Catalan. And he said that in Catalonia, they describe it as a minoritized language rather than a minority language. 
I thought that's just yes. such a beautiful way. You know, when you just change the, the, the word that you use to describe it, it completely changes your mindset towards it, doesn't it? That, that wouldn't be one of the Wiki Tongues boys, would yeah, it? Yeah, 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 yeah. Daniel. Daniel. Do you know him? Ah, I do you know Daniel. Ah, He's yeah. a lovely boy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that was him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, just something clicked there. I was like, I know who that, yeah, is. Know who that is. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was yeah. Daniel. <laughs> okay, so we've talked about the languages of Scotland, Gaelic as well, and the sort of situation where it is right now. Can we talk a bit more about the, the, the am I saying this correctly, Dalriada? Is that correct? Dalriada, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah the, the Dalriada yeah. dialects. And mm -hmm. how you came across it and, and where it was when you found it and what the situation is now. When I, when I found it, it, it didn't even have a name. It's never had a name. But it was alluded to in, in, in academic sources just here and there over the years from Edward Lloyd uh, around about 1700, right up to the 1950s with John Lorne Campbell and Derek Thompson. You know, they alluded to an area that seemed to have a fairly uniform set of sounds you know, and, and set of forms. There was there was all these, as I say, allusions to it, but nobody had actually said, oh, it's this. I hadn't been home in many years. I grew up in Cowell in, in Argyle. And I went back for, for the first time in 10 years, having left kind of a permanently uh, in, when I was about 18. And I went back uh, in my late 20s for the first time, having learned Gaelic through books and what have you to a reasonable conversational level. But feeling no connection to the kind of Western Isles dialect because, you know, I'd been to the Western Isles once, you know, uh, for a couple of days cycling my bike and, and, you know, barely even heard any Gaelic while I was there. So I had no connection to no family connection to Western Isles. And when I got back home to Argyle for the first time in 10 years, rather than having the homesickness when I was away, I got back there and I was so homesick that... I remember leaning against a bush just out the back of where I used to live, my old house, and literally thinking I was going to be sick with the nostalgia. And we call it Kianalus in Gaelic, and it means a mixture of homesickness, nostalgia, longing, kind of, but also this cultural draw. Kianalus is a cultural homesickness. And I just remember feeling this, this all-pervading Kianalus and just going out. I need to I need to find out what the language was like around here. So I first started just going and seeing the oldest people that I could find. And one or two of them had a smattering, you know, they had a phrase or two. So they were able to say it was absolutely spoken here. And, you know, we wouldn't say Kimarahau, we would say Jamarahau. You know, we wouldn't say Tafpalert, we would say Gramatakid, you know, for, for thank you. And, you know, they, they would be able to give me the, these little bits and pieces. Well, the next thing, of course, was search the web for anything I could possibly find. First of all, it was just statistics about speakership with the census returns when the, the, it had started to take a plunge you know, after the Second World War. And, um, and then next, it was references to, to, to books that might have bits and pieces. And the next thing, I was hunting them down. And I was just drinking in all the information and starting to build the first corner pieces of the, of the puzzle. And then over time, I realised that there were recordings made for the Gaelic Linguistic Survey. These were in the School of Scottish Studies. When I got to the School of Scottish Studies, it led me to find out that there were a whole pile more recordings done after that era and before. And there was actually basically enough material to learn the dialect. 
it, it, almost entirely recording. just recordings yeah wow. so what i did was for for about three years I, I would put the cans on every night and i would go to sleep listening to all the old people of the area talking until i started to internalize the features and started just it started to fall out of my mouth and um, I, as I was listening to these recordings, because I'm, I'm an exceptionally good mimic by just sheer good luck, yeah. I was able to start speaking like these people. But because I was constantly repeating their speech patterns and their ideas, it started to rewire my brain. I, I, I can honestly say that I've become quite a bit less selfish a person. Wow. Having repeating wow. these folks ways of thinking and what they felt was important about the world and you know just because they're being interviewed just about life and what they did for a job and you know who their relatives were and how they felt about their grandmother and you know the stories that they used to tell and the songs they used to tell what were weddings like what were funerals like and, and so they're giving their worldview and things they feel are important and fundamental to who they are as a person so in repeating these constantly for three years <laughs> it, it genuinely rewired my brain. So once I was getting to the point where I could basically speak the dialect, I was missing masses of vocabulary, of course. Mm. You know, what is the what is the Dalrada Gaelic for frog spawn? What is the Dalrada Gaelic for a, a porridge stirrer? You know, I mean... <laughs> you know, Those are necessary words. <laughs> oh, of course. You know. <laughs> Where was I going to get this stuff from? Well, a, a friend of mine who happened to be one of the guys who did some of the old recordings with these old folk said to me, he says, I'm, I'm sure the linguist Niels Homer went round Cowl and Middergyle in the 1930s and, and, and filled up a half a dozen notebooks with wow. vocabulary and with, you know, and I was like, you're kidding. It turned out that this guy had actually been by complete accident, driving through Uppsala in Sweden. And he says to his wife, he says, this is where Niels Holmer is from. I wonder if his son still lives here, because I met his son years ago, and who knows, his son might have these notebooks. And it led to this chain reaction where one day, one of the finest days of my life, all the material very kindly scanned into his computer by, by Niels Homer's son, Arthur, came into my inbox in PDF format. Wow. And literally se seven notebooks jammed with stories, songs, proverbs, vocabulary, you know, uh, uh, little sayings, you know, what do you call somebody who's in the sulks? Who's, who's taken a huff, how do you tell a horse to slow down? Uh, you know, what do you call broken pieces of china? And see, for me, these pieces of vocabulary are literally sacred. It, 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 is, it is a genuinely pseudo-religious thing for me. You know, it's like sacred text. Mm. And all these words are, 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 are my uh, interface with the land and with nature. After learning the dialect for a few years, Agath made the decision to teach it to his children, creating a new generation of proud speakers and reigniting the flames necessary for a language to spark and spread. So the, the way I see it is, well, you know, if I'm going to shoot my mouth off and be a real pain in the butt, I need to be able to show people what the way forward is. And, and well, this is it. So I now, I, I now I have created 
four of the most fluent speakers in the country and they're still kids because that's the way forward intergenerational transmission treating the language is totally sacred and and worthy of the utmost veneration and having the culture the songs the stories all these things that, 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 that give our lives meaning and, and help us to interface with the past and with the world around us so it was all pretty ambitious seven and a half years ago when I started this, by the way. I had no idea whether I would succeed. And But then every time you turn another corner, you get more ambitious and you, yeah. you decide you're going to take it further. Yeah. You know, but at the time you say, I'm just going to do this and see if I manage that. And then once you achieve it relatively easily, you go, oh, do you know what, bugger it. You know, let's... <laughs> <laughs> next level. What's next? What's yeah. next? I'm hoping it can be a template for other dialects, really, and, and maybe for other languages, in fact, around the world. I, I hope that, that, you know, my example is, is, is worthwhile and that it can inspire people, you know? Well, this is, this is actually what I was going to say. One of my questions was, if people are listening or watching to this now and thinking, wow, this is amazing. I, I knew bits of the story before we started, but as you were telling it, I was like, sure. what? And uh, it is incredibly inspiring. What would be your advice if people are in a sort of similar situation where they feel like there's a dialect or a language that they know bits of and they kind of want to get there and, and, and revive it, even begin to teach it to their own children? What would be your yeah. one piece of, of golden advice? The, the one piece of golden advice um, would be to seek solidarity early on with other people who are doing similar things because it's a bloody lonely road. <laughs> very, very good advice. Just just believe, because if you're the one having to do this, there's clearly nobody else mm. in the picture who's able to take it on. And if, if you've realised the importance of this, then you've awoken in yourself a duty which you can't turn your back on. So beyond your, your own family, you've also started to offer immersion courses. For, for others. Yeah, well, I mean, it was, it was a lovely experience. I think the folks had a great time. Um, you know, there were there were certainly there were, everyone got something I felt really important and enjoyable from it. We do actually want to attract young people who have thoughts of having families or adopting families, or even if they're not, if they're not in a position to do so, that will want to then pass the language on afterwards it doesn't really matter how it gets passed on you know any paradigm is a good one as long as it's been passed on mm -hmm. but the idea would be for people um to, to to achieve fluency in it in order to pass it on otherwise you know let's just be honest brass tacks i mean you know it's not going to survive if it if it you know it's like anything else so that's why we're, we're building dalriada.scot you've got to think practically when there's only half a dozen speakers of a yeah. dialect you know what I've always wanted to do is to get all known resources for the dialect in one place. And we are slowly building that um, so that learners have a one-stop shop, no matter where they are on, on the planet. They could be learning it from Guatemala or, you know, from uh, Tierra del Fuego or from uh, Australia. You know, um, we, we need to make it globally accessible, especially to the expat community as well. If there's people with their Gael roots, you know, we'd love them to, to get involved. But I think at this stage, 
you know yourself from from your your own study of languages, especially with minority ones, you'll know how tenuous the whole thing can be. The the, the connection to potential success is so tenuous and so brittle that if you don't make the language or the dialect or whatever it is as as universally accessible as humanly possible, then you're hobbling your chances of success, you know? You can't help but be inspired by Agatha's story. If you want to learn more or help the cause in any way possible, visit darryadda.scot to do just that. Season two of Language Stories will be back in late 2018. In the meantime, there may be one or two extra bonus episodes just like this one, but we shall see. You've been listening to Language Stories, a podcast by Lindsay Does Languages. If you like what we do and you like video, then head on over to our YouTube channel where you can watch the sister video to this podcast episode. Just search Lindsay Does Languages on YouTube and on our channel, you'll see the playlist for language stories. Once you've done that, the best things you can do to help us spread the word about language stories are to tell a friend you know who will love this too and leave a review on your favourite podcast directory. That's a fancy way of saying where you're listening to this right now. Reviews help us to get found by new listeners, which is pretty important when you're a tiny new fish in a big podcast pond. And finally, if you have a language story that you'd love to share, or you know someone that does, get in touch. You can email me at lindsay, that's L-I-N-D-S-A-Y, at doeslanguages.com. That's lindsay at doeslanguages.com. I always love to hear from you. Your feedback helps to shape future episodes. And that's important, because without shape, they're just lumps. As always, you can follow me in all the usual places, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and all that jazz, and learn more at lindsaydoeslanguages.com. Until next time, keep learning languages and keep sharing stories. Thank you. Masin Lip. <laughs>